Hello, and you are listening to the Church Militant Podcast. Our goal in this podcast is to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to take up the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, to see Christ as worthy of all sacrifice, and to fight the good fight of faith. My name is Jordan Grogan, and joining me once again this evening, except this time live from Babylon, also known as uh, the Big Apple, New York City, is Pastor Anthony Quagliata. How you doing, That's man? It. I see that see that sweet I'm, mask. You I'm reporting live from Babylon, just you know, following <laughs> following the mandates over here under this in, intense tyranny. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that is the coolest. It's interesting. It says a lot about the culture we live in, where even Zoom that we're using to record this has an option for you to put a digital mask oh, on your face. I even I even could do different ones here. You know, it's uh, I, I could choose. I could do the medical one. And all that good stuff. I'm trying to find it now. For those of you just listening, whether that's on iTunes or Spotify or something like that, Anthony actually has a digital N95 mask over his face right now uh, to ensure that he doesn't infect me uh, <laughs> via, via Zoom, I that, guess. Oh, now it. he's got the legit one. Now he's know. wearing a surgical mask. That's it. I got the 7-Eleven one. I feel so much safer already. Thank you so much. <laughs> there we go. I feel as if, you know, I can't get COVID again for the third time. <laughs> That's it. You know, it's just, uh, just, just, just in case you never know what could go through these mics. So <laughs> yeah. we gotta, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta wear the mask, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter how many miles apart we are. That's you right. Know, it's, we gotta, it's better to be safe than sorry. It's better to be safe than smart. <laughs> I guess just <laughs> the facts. Well, man, thank you for coming on. Uh, I know you guys, your wife's about to have a baby anytime. So uh, oh, if, yeah. you, if you have to, you know, pop up and run off the podcast because your wife's going into labor, we'll forgive you for that. That's all right. Cool. Cool. <laughs> uh, so yeah, everybody, you be in prayer for Anthony and for his wife, uh, Miss Taylor. She is about to have a baby literally any day now. Um, mm -hmm. And then in the not too distant future, they will be making the trip from New York down here to rural North Carolina, to God's country, uh, to come and, and take over the pastorate here at Smith Chapel Church. So, brother, we're excited for that. And, yeah, thanks for coming on this evening. I appreciate it, brother. Well, man, what I wanted to talk about uh, this evening, if I had to try to put maybe a title on it, it would be uh, Worship and the Strange Fire of Self-Expression. So, you know, it's no surprise to anyone to say we live in generation me. I actually think I heard, I can't remember if it was Ben Shapiro or somebody like that, but it was, it was a secular source referred to uh, the generation right now as generation selfie. Uh, you know, everyone is completely infatuated with themselves. You have self-empowerment, you have self-help, self-love, self-health, self-ease, self-identity. You just go on and on and on. I mean, it only takes about five seconds on social media to see how obsessed people are with themselves. Uh, so I think we could say as believers that the God of the age is self. And you kind of see, you know, if you would think about it historically, people used to engage in all these different ritualistic expressions for their various pagan deities. Um, and though they had this desire to appease their pagan God. And now that we've cast off, for the most part in the modern world, we've cast off paganism with a plurality of, of various different deities. And now we've cast off the, the Judeo-Christian worldview with the one true living God. Now we are living for the God of self. And when self yes. is God, self-expression becomes worship. 
Well, that's just the mm-hmm. culture we live in. And it, we see it out there. But where I want us to focus on in our time this evening is the tragic reality that this obsession with self and self-expression has crept its way into the worship of the church. Mm. Uh, what do you think are some ways that we see this kind of parallel between the self-expression and the self-worship in the world and how that's crept its way into the church? Yeah, I think uh, at large, uh, and again, I like to use my words carefully when I when I refer to the church. Uh, you know, I like to say the professing church or Christendom, For sure, um, because. Uh, the true people of God, you know, as it says in Philippians 3, 3, they rejoice in Christ Jesus. You know, they worship according to the spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. Uh, but when I look at, you know, the professor church at large, you know, what you see is a desire to cultivate some sort of atmosphere, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the Sunday meeting, the Sunday service. Um, it's about uh, my experience and what I can gain from that. And um, coming from, you know, when the Lord saved me, especially uh, being around the charismatic circles, what I had noticed was a it was almost like church was the high that you needed to get through the rest of the week. Yeah. And so instead of instead of um, instead of taking drugs, instead of uh, getting high off of some sort of hobby, uh, let me go to church, use the name of Jesus and fill myself with some sort of ecstasy and create some sort of atmosphere that's going to give me a boost now, jolt my emotions, and hopefully that gets me maybe to a few days to the to the prayer meeting, mm. maybe a few days to the next service and then and, and the following week. And it's almost this sense of, again, desiring to create an atmosphere. And so it is, it is a... Uh, it is not based off revelation. It's based off against self, like you were saying. Yeah, I remember growing up in, uh, you know, uh, kind of what I call hyper fundamentalist, uh, you know, isolated, independent, fundamental, King James only, Bible believing, hellfire, damnation, dress wearing, shirt and tie, you know, that kind of Baptist church circles. And yeah, I remember it's hardly here in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet there's not much of that up there. Um, but I remember in those circles hearing, hearing uh, expressions like, you know, it's good to go to church on Sunday and get filled up. Or, you know, um, the spirit really showed up and showed out. And people, they kind of have this, like exactly what you said, they have this attitude toward church to where I go to church. It's all about me. I go to get what I need to make it through the week. Um, and then, you know, another, when I got out of those circles, I, I moved to a Southern Baptist church and, you know, for the most part, what I can remember about our worship services there is they were, they were very more so like a traditional Southern Baptist, you know, we had the choir, um, and our youth group or something, maybe we'd have the band or anything, but I don't remember people having that, like, I'm here to get filled up, you know, I've got to get my spiritual high, but the more I, I the more I went down toward the, you know, the elevation Jesus culture, uh, passion conference kind of of road it definitely was we come in to the worship service uh, you know everybody's just kind of hanging out realistically all the single dudes are checking out all the girls you know but then when the worship starts the lights go down way dark it's super quiet you know somebody's just hitting that one long note on the electric guitar <laughs> and it's like all this right, perfect exactly. little ambient setting 
and the lights come on the stage and literally it's almost so dark. You can't even see the person next to you. Mm. And there's no, it's all about me. Like I'm having this experience and you, mm. you can see, you know, the people have got their eyes closed and people are dancing around. They don't care about who's around or whatever. And the first thing I thought in my mind was like, man, this is worship. Like this is mm. it, you know? And I remember yeah. walking out of a service and if I didn't cry or if I didn't raise my hands or if I didn't, you know, get the feels, I remember feeling like I had, yeah, I had <laughs> worship, like what's wrong? Yeah. Why didn't, or, you know, uh, we, we played through how he loves us by the David Crowder band. Why didn't I cry? You know, what's wrong with my heart? What's, what's, what's wrong with me? Um, but it was very much, you know, me, my experience. It didn't matter what was going on with anybody else. And the only part of the service that I considered worship was the singing. Mm, mm. Um, so, and then I think about, you know, other ways we see that is, I remember, and this is just a, a personal experience I had. And if the guy that I'm talking about listens to this, you know, shout out to you. I'm sorry. You're going to be using this uh, <laughs> illustration. That's it. We're canceled today. That's right. Yeah. Getting canceled already. I told my wife, I said, after this podcast, you know, I'm going to lose 17 of my listeners and I only have 18. <laughs> so, and the 18th one is my mom. So, um, but I remember when I was, when I was still pastoring, uh, there was a local church or a local church plant popped up in our town. And, um, you know, they had like the, the, the one word church, you know, it was, and you could tell by their logo, they're sending out mailers. You know, I, I knew exactly what kind of church this was going to be. It was like your pop-up gymnasium, come get your coffee and donuts and Jesus. we got the band. Everybody's wearing their skinny jeans and it got, we got our tattoos out. You know, I knew it was that kind of church. So, um, I, I reached out to the guy who was going to be the campus pastor. I asked if he would meet with me and he said, yes. So me and another guy from the church at the time, we went and met with him. And I mean, I came across super aggressive and abrasive. You know, the guy actually said uh, that he felt like he was the, uh, a set before a presbytery or something because the counsels, <laughs> I, the questions I was asking, you know, I was like, tell me what's the gospel, you know, tell me what is the church. And, and um, one of the questions I asked him was, why do you feel, I said, you know, you're, you're meeting right here in the school and from where you're meeting in the local middle school, you could throw a football and you could hit in any direction and you could hit four other churches. So why do you need to come to our town and start another church instead of finding out about the churches that are here and trying to help support one of these local churches that's already here? And this is what he said, Nola. He said, we feel like God has given us a unique vision for our church. Mm. and a unique vision for what the people need mm. yeah. and literally what he's saying is we want to offer a flavor of church that doesn't exist here right now right. and that just is the, that just you know puts the puts the finger right on the issue of this is how self-expression has manifested itself in the modern modern day quote-unquote christianity is that whatever your flavor is you can find a place to go out there you know, if you want the shirt and tie King James only, you can go find that. If you want the rock star Jesus culture church, you can go find that. If you want traditional Southern Baptist, you can find that. And there's just all of these flavors across the board. And it's become so consumeristic. You know, if you like Chick-fil-A, here's a Chick-fil-A. But guess what's right beside it? There's a Zaxby's if you like that better. Or, you know, if you want Mexican food and it's just like visible Christianity to the world is like third Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors. Come and pick your flavor. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's it drives me crazy when, um, 
you know, you have particular people who say, well, this is the vision of the church and this is the mission of the church. Mm. And, and God gave me a mission and God gave me a vision. And, you know, the, the only mission statement, the, the mission statement that every church should have ought to be Matthew 28. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. He, right. he gave a, Jesus gave the church the mission statement, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything right. that I have taught to, you know, to that you might observe them. And so it's based off Jesus's doctrine. That's, right. that's the mission. And the vision, you know, I mean, this verse is always taken out of context, you know, without a vision, my people perish. Mm. Um, but what it, what vision is that? It's the prophetic vision. Right. And what's the right. prophetic vision? The prophetic vision is given to us uh, through the apostles and prophets that's given to us in, in Holy Scripture. And so, you know, when this now I understand that God does raise up particular local congregations with particular giftings. Mm. Right. And so. You know, I do believe that, you know, you see Ephesians four, you have this one universal church and this one body, one spirit. And after Paul, you know, goes on to say, we have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all the things that unites us in Ephesians four, six, there's a, but there, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so I do think that there are assemblies that God raises up and there'll be particular giftings and a unique giftings. But at the end of the day, those giftings are to serve the one mission, right. <laughs> the mission of Jesus Christ and making disciples. And so, um, but yeah, you just, you know, you had brought up the, the vision and, you know, like the, the man bringing up all of that. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I have to give props to some of these guys because it takes a lot of, you got to be really smart to come up with your own mission. I think that you're going to do it better than, than Jesus Christ. And so, yeah. but um yeah, you and know, that's I, just, uh, I mean, it's crazy because it's everywhere. I mean, it's literally everywhere. You know, I spent um, I spent two years working for the North American Mission Board uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Christian denomination in the world. And I remember going to trainings as an intern and as an apprentice, and this is what we were told. You need to come up with your mission, with your vision, with your plan, and with your timeline. Mm -hmm. And it's literally, you know, when I began to study marketing, because I was, I was being offered a job as a chief marketing officer. So I began to start studying marketing and marketing tactics, tactics. And that's literally, we were literally as church planters, we were being taught secular marketing strategies. And that's what it was, is because you need to find out what the people need, find out how you can give them that in a unique way, and then implement a plan to attract them to come and participate. Um, but you know, when we start saying things like this, it ruffles feathers pretty quickly. Mm. I remember several years ago, I wrote, I wrote a blog. Um, this was while I was pastoring. I had written on a blog and I'd preached a sermon about, uh, what governs worship. Is it relevance and preference or is it revelation and prescription? What mm. ought to govern the way we worship? And I posted it online and it got a little bit of interaction back and forth. And there was a girl I went to high school with. She was a really sweet girl. You could definitely tell by the way she lived and the way she conducted herself in school. She was a Christian girl. She wasn't mm. afraid to talk about the Lord. Um, you know, she was she was very modest in the way she dressed, the way she behaved. I mean, and all around, like, it's hard to find people her age who live the way she did, genuinely expressing yeah. her faith. But when I posted this online and we got some of the back and forth that started happening there, she sent me a message and she said, you know, I, I used to uh, appreciate a lot of what you said and I used to have a great deal of respect for you, but who do you think you are to tell people how they can worship God? 
Mm. Um, so when we say these things, it, it kind of leads to the question, why is worship that is governed by self-expression a problem? Aren't we under grace and not under law? Why is this a problem? Well, I mean, you know, it kind of stems back to what we talked about last time about the fear of God. You know, mm. there's no knowledge of God and therefore it doesn't produce fear and it doesn't produce the right worship. Um, but I, I think, I mean, you, you could look at it from a lot of different angles. And, you know, what you hear a lot of times is I is the term uh, uh, or the coin term, this personal relationship with Jesus. Right. And so I have this personal relationship with Jesus. And if you don't define that correctly, what you, you'll start to get the idea of this, this it's true, right? Christianity in, in one sense is not a religion. It's a relationship. There's a truth there, but when you take that truth to some unhealthy boundaries, now you've just, you've just lost that truth. And so what you start think with the, what people start thinking in their mind is, um, it's, it's my relationship. And so I can interact with God the way I feel is mm. correct. And if you interact with God the way you desire to, that is correct. Um, but that, that's a huge problem for many reasons. I mean, one, you know, God, God, God is holy. Um, God is, God is set apart and God is God. He is the, I am who I am. He delights in what he delights because it's according to his nature and he hates what he hates because it's according to his nature. And so, um, you know, I, I mean, you could look at it even from our own relationships, right? I mean, you know, I, I, my wife has certain likes, certain desires, and if I say, well, you know what, I'm going to give you and love you the way I want to love you, not the way you want to be loved. You know, mm. who cares about that? I'm going to give you the gifts that you may not necessarily like, but, you know, I think it's good. Matter of fact, I was just talking about it <laughs> the other day. There was one, uh, uh, her birthday's on Valentine's Day. So, you know, she never spends money on herself. And, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go all out this year. I'm going to buy this. I found this beautiful Michael Kors watch and it was shiny purple and, and it was like, uh, and uh, so I found it and I'm like, oh man, she's going to love me, you know? <laughs> and I bought this, all these chocolates and all that. And I'm like, oh man, this watch is going to really, this is going to be good. And so I knew right away she, I mean, I was failing miserably with the chocolate. That's another story, <laughs> but she opens the, uh, the gift and she kind of does that like, laugh smile like <laughs> you're so cute that you tried so hard but, it, but you, also you missed it yeah and i'm like what are you talking about this is a nice watch i was like you know it's part of the plum line or whatever and yeah and she's like babe you know i don't like that you know i like mm -hmm. pink you know i like rose gold and and i'm like well and again here here's my justification well i'm using wisdom you already have those kinds of stuff you know but <laughs> so i thought maybe thinking outside the box and you know the illustration doesn't perfectly fit for different reasons but however the truth is is that you know i i i thought i knew better <laughs> you wow. know that's really what it all comes down to even though i know what she likes i really know i know the color she likes i know what but i thought i was going to know better and that's and men think that way when it comes to god yeah and um but when you go throughout scripture the old testament script scripture especially what was god teaching us through the specific laws and having specific uh offerings and specific sacrifices he's teaching us about the way he ought to be worshiped. Right. And so, um, yeah. And that's exactly, I think that, you know, that's kind of the point that where I like to take people is 
you start looking at the Old Testament, even in the even in the garden, you know, <clears throat> when when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and we'll get into this a little bit more in a second. But from the very first time Cain and Abel come to offer their sacrifices before the Lord, we see that God determines what is acceptable and what isn't. And you trace that throughout the whole entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. But then somebody will come back and say, yeah, but all of that is Old Testament. That's been done away with. And immediately uh, I go to Hebrews chapter 12 because Hebrews chapter 12 paints this contrast like we, we hit on a little bit in the episode on the fear of God. This contrast between Sinai and, and, uh, and Mount Zion, you know, this mm-hmm. contrast between the old covenant people and the old covenant worship and and now this better covenant and you you see the horrors of mount sinai yeah and that's where god gave his people the law and and you see moses was afraid the people couldn't handle to hear the voice of god it was terrifying and then the contrast comes in oh but it's so much better now we've Mm. come to the new jerusalem to the heavenly jerusalem to mount zion to the city of the living god the angels are there the, the souls of the firstborn saints that have already gone to glory are that have been made perfect. They're there. Christ is there, the mediator of the better covenant. And so you would expect all the application then is, okay, so just, you know, do whatever you want, man. God is, right. you know, Jesus has taken care of everything, but that's not the application. The application is, so then let us offer to God acceptable worship mm-hmm. with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God hasn't changed. The same consuming fire that was terrifying on Mount Sinai is the same God that we still serve. Mm. The difference is where the law come and showed us our transgressions and our need for a savior. Christ has come and accomplished that salvation for us. And now we're not at the bottom of the mountain and Moses being sent up. The law was given through Moses, John 1, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. So Christ has come down from the mountain and taken us up and he brings us into the presence of the father, but that is still the same consuming fire. Mm. What I think people miss in that text is where it says we should offer to God acceptable worship. Mm. The implication there is that there is a form of worship that is acceptable and that is not acceptable. So that means that worship is not about our self-expression it's not about our interest. It isn't about our preferences. It's about what God has deemed acceptable or unacceptable. Mm. And then we, we have to say, okay, where has God told us what is acceptable and what is unacceptable? And mm. the only place we can go for that is to the scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it means that the new covenant doesn't mean we can just worship however we want. There are still, there is still an acceptable worship. There is still an unacceptable worship. So what I thought we could do now is just go through some examples of people in the scripture coming before God in worship, according to their own ideas, according to their own expression, and just kind of see how God interacts with those, those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first one I wanted to, to look at was in Genesis chapter four, as I just mentioned with Cain and Abel, um, after God has covered Adam and Eve's sin with the skin of an animal um, and, and implicitly through the sacrifice of an animal, G- Genesis 4 opens, you have Cain and Abel offering their sacrifices to God. So we know that according, I guess, to the instruction given by their parents, they knew God was to be worshipped. Mm. And we read this in Genesis chapter 4, and I'm reading uh, from the elect standard version here. Uh, so <laughs> maybe uh, I'll, I'll throw you a bone in a minute and let you read. Uh, Genesis chapter four, it says, beginning of verse three, 
in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So Abel, it seems to be that he, maybe I might be taking a little liberty here, but I think historically this liberty has been taken as well. Abel seems to follow the pattern established by the revelation of God. God Mm -hmm. covered Adam and Eve's sin with uh, animal clothes. So, you know, we, we infer from that, that God must have killed an animal, showed them the wages of sin is death. And the only way to cover their transgression was with blood. Blood had to be shed to cover sin without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sins. The scripture tells us. So Abel, has seen his parents, presumably seen his parents offer this sacrifice to God, and he offers a sacrifice of like kind, and it's accepted. But Cain here offers worship based on his own ideas, and it's rejected. What do you think? What do you What do you see in here? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I definitely see, uh, you know, historically that that has definitely been uh, brought about. You know, I, I still go back and forth only because, you know, I feel that in a sense, scripture's silent, you know, did, oh, did God's, sure. did God, you know, did God, all, did, was there some point where God revealed that the sacrifice of an animal? And obviously once you see the old covenant law play out, um, but, you know, from a, from another perspective as well, you know, Cain brought, right. What, what he, he worked the ground, right. Abel tended the flock. And so they brought uh, what they, what was from their own labor. Mm. Um but I was listening to something recently and uh, now it's now it's really escaping me. But um, that's how it goes. You know, I, I don't want to get well, like I said that's how it goes. Oh, I hate when that happens. But, uh, you know, Abel, he, he brings the first point of his flock and of their fat. Hmm. Right. I mean, Abel is, is bringing he's bringing a choice offering here. Yeah. And I think there was something, uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't even want to say it in a sense because I, I just can't remember. <laughs> I just can't even remember right now what based off, you know, Cain was, was it kind of like a cheap offering or mm. something based on the Hebrew? Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure. Plus I didn't, when I, when I was listening to it, I didn't actually look it up to test to see if that was the case yeah. anyway. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you go to Hebrews 11 and you see what, what what really the issue was right faith faith right. was the issue and uh you know abel brought an offering that was pleasing to god he did it by faith mm. and cain comes with his offering and he doesn't he doesn't come with faith you know he comes with this this sacrifice of trying to a sacrifice of religiosity you know right. doing your work doing doing enough to get by basically uh, while Abel comes and, uh, you know, based off what we gather from Hebrews 11, he comes and he brings the fat of this animal um, to the Lord uh, because of faith, because he trusts in, in, in God. Yeah, and I think, you know, <clears throat> implications aside, the principle that we can still see ironed out here is that there is a form of worship that God has no regard for. Amen. You know, God doesn't just look at Cain and say, well, you know, you tried, man. Good job. It's the thought that counts. <laughs> exactly. And it's almost, it. you see, Cain was angry. Mm. He was angry. So it's no surprise that when you start talking about these things that people, that, as I said earlier, people's feathers get ruffled. They get super point, yeah. angry because 
they can't imagine a God who isn't as infatuated with them or as impressed with them as they are with themselves. Mm. You know, it's almost like, it's almost so immature. I'll put it to you this way. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about my son, John, he's really wants a Mohawk right now for some reason. I don't know where that thing, that idea came from, <laughs> but I mean, it's, he's at this age, he's four years old and he is, you know, like trying to do one handed push-ups and pull-ups. He's just like, you know, he wants to be an army ranger, but he's at this stage in life where he's like, everything is watch dad, watch dad, watch dad, dad, look at this, look at this, look at this. Um, and, and it's because he's so proud of what he can do mm. and he's just so confident because of mine and his relationship that i am going to be as proud of him doing whatever he's doing as he is of himself you know he's like watch dad i can do a front flip and then he just barely does this little forward roll you know yeah. um and i'm like hey cool man you know but he's <laughs> you know he's like just amped up about it yeah watch i do this front flip and it's almost like it's kind of expected at that stage of maturity but I mean, we see people who have been supposedly but professing Christians for years, and that's still the level of their worship. Look, God, I raised my hands. Look, God, I cried a little bit. Look, I got cold chills on my arm. And it's yeah. as if they can't even fathom a category where we would say the Lord had no regard for your offering. Mm. And so but we see that principle. I mean, we're in the opening pages of Genesis, and you can go back before Cain and Abel, and you can see Adam and Eve when they sewed fig leaves together to try mm. to cover up their own nakedness. It wasn't enough. God gave them something else. He had no regard for that. Um, so moving on, let's look at another one. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10. Um, and if you want to read this one, verses 1 through 3. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Yes, sir. I'm reading for the new King James because if the king ain't on it. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Hey, my, my dad used to have a big bumper sticker on his work van that said if it ain't king james it ain't bible <laughs> big bumper sticker yeah man it was huge oh, I mean, it took man, like this it. much space on the side of his truck <laughs> that's it you got to use the one moses used that's exactly right <laughs> but it says in uh, leviticus 10 then nadab and abihu the sons of aaron each took his censer and put fire in it put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, mm. which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Mm. Okay, I'm going to give it to the new King James on this one. That's a way better translation. Than <laughs> yeah. Um, now, here's what, here's what I think is so fascinating about this particular text. You have two men who have been chosen personally by God to draw near and worship out of all of the, the, the probably millions of people of Israel. So God chooses Aaron and his sons. And the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they come, number one, to worship the one true God. Right. Their goal was worship and they come secondly not doing something that god has said don't do that god didn't say don't do that but they did come doing something that god had not commanded them to do hmm. so you know it's not like god said don't bring this particular kind of fire 
They just brought it even though God hadn't said to bring it. Mm. And God breaks out from the altar and consumes them in fire and they die. Mm. Can, can you imagine if that happened this coming Sunday in the churches across our nation, everybody bringing in some form of worship that God hasn't commanded and God just breaks out and kills them? How many people would we have left? Oof. We'd be in big trouble. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be in big trouble. I mean, you know, praise the Lord for his grace. It's not as if, Amen. you know, his people have not, you know, come with a whole heart. But at the end of the day, um, we, we should be we should marvel the fact that this doesn't happen more often. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we should marvel. And it does. You know, don't don't you know, I think sometimes, you know, shallow, shallow churches, shallow theology will have this idea where, you know, um, somebody dies of some sort of sickness and you know it's not the lord you know it's not the mm. lord um but you, you see clearly you know people taking the lord's supper in an unworthy manner uh people were put to death for sure uh, you see you see this in in acts with ananias and sapphira you know and so um it definitely happens but yeah it's uh not not so much with fire <laughs> you yeah. know fire coming down from the heavens it's it's uh definitely a sobering passage and and i love what you know what he says right here in verse three where he says by those who come near me i must be regarded as holy mm. when you come and offer and you desire to live a life of worship and not even just on sunday just in general your your life of worship to the lord and you desire to please the lord worship the lord in your own inventive ways God is saying, I must, you're not regarding God as holy. Yeah. No matter how many times you sing holy, 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 God, and God takes his holiness serious. I mean, Moses, th th this is the same thing that God said to Moses when he struck the rock. Right. And he says, you, the reason why you are not going to the promised land now, Moses, you're going to die, you know, uh, before, before Israel enters is because you did not portray me as holy before the people. Mm. And that is exactly what Nadab and Abihu did. And, and that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. As God is pouring out his spirit and souls are being saved, they lie to the Holy Spirit and God puts them to death. And you see, what, why, why is that? Because it's taking God's presence, God's glory, and taking it lightly right taking it to just just treating it casual as if it is not the most precious uh being that there is that god's presence is something that is ought to be ought to be trembled at and then we know as as the blood of christ cleanses us we have boldness and assurance and nevertheless at the same time there is a sense of awe sense of reverence sense yeah. of weightiness and so yeah i think there has to be <clears throat> there had there ought to be a sanctified carefulness there ought to be a, a, a carefulness in the way that we approach uh, and a carefulness with what we offer to god because that's the thing it isn't that they were they were worshiping a false god it isn't that they were worshiping in a way that god said don't do that uh, now there were things god had told his people don't do that that's the what that's the way the pagans worship that's the way the peoples that i'm driving out from before you that's the way they worship don't worship like that yeah. They weren't even doing that. They were just taking it upon their own. Hey, we like this, presumably. We like this incense. Let's let's take it and put it before the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think 
the principle that I want to draw out of this second one here is that what exactly what you hit on that God takes his holiness seriously. Hmm. The, what the Lord says in response is not, Hey, they didn't worship, right? That isn't hmm. what he says. He says among those who are near me, I will be regarded as holy before the people. I will be glorified. So that, that puts us in the framework where we must understand that worship is first and foremost about God being regarded as holy and about God being glorified, not hmm. self-expression, not the opportunity for us to have some form of experience. Our experience is there. And I love the way I actually like the way I think you could pull a definition of worship here from where he says, those who draw near to me, mm. like this is what worship is. We draw near to God to, right. to us, to proclaim his worth, to give thanks for who he is and for what he has done and to call others to come near with us and participate mm. in that. But when we do that, it's not about come and listen to what I can say. Come and listen to the songs we can say. Come and experience my preferences. It's come and see God as holy, as completely other, as transcendent, uh, separate from creation and, and transcendent above our corruption. He's holy. He's other in a category entirely by himself. And here is his, his manifold beauty on display. Let's mm. come and exalt in that together instead of come and check out what I can give to God. Yeah. Um, you know, James four says the same exact thing. Draw near to God. Right. Right. That, 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 this, this reality that we're able to draw near to God. And again, it, it has, it has implications of, of our whole life. Um, and so draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But then there's exhortations, there's commands given, cleanse your right. hands, you sinners, you know, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so what is, what is James telling us? If we're going to draw near to God, there needs to be a sense and we're coming to God, not with unconfessed sin, mm. right? Not coming because again, you know, we're not offering, right? These incense to the, well, we are offering incense to the Lord, right. but right. Well, what is that incense? The, the prayers, the Thanksgiving. Yeah. And it's amazing when you look at, I was just having this discussion the other day with some of the saints that, you know, when, when you look at New Testament worship and, extended you know not not just talking about the church assembly but you know your your life you know you see how paul uses the old testament uh, offerings and sacrifices and all those words and then he he takes those that language and puts it in the way we live our life of worship so for example paul tells the church at philippi that he's being uh, poured out as a drink offering right. uh, you know on a sacrifice and service of your faith um offer your bodies as living sacrifices, right? Roman 12. So what, what is that saying? We're our bodies, giving ourselves to holiness, having our minds transformed by um, the, the mercies of God. We are offering ourselves, offering our life, offering our hands and body and mind to, to as instruments of righteousness. That's a form of worship. And yeah. so when we're drawing near to God on a, on a daily basis, as we ought to be, we ought to be, if we, if we want to, have more of God's presence, more of God's fullness, then what are we going to do? We're going to come to him and get rid of those things which he does not desire in us, right? And so, you know, we, we can even take, and again, some this is where um, people have a hard time using the Old Testament, you know, to, to inform the new covenant believer. Leviticus 10 has everything to do with the way we live our life. We might not be mingling with this this incense that the ceremony the ceremonies uh, commanded in the in the old covenant. However, 
we're coming to God with what, you know, the, our prayers are, are yeah. an aroma yeah. to the Lord. You know, we see in, in revelation and uh, if we're going to come near to God with those kinds of offerings, what we ought to do, we, we ought to get rid of, of, un, of any known sin. You know, we ought to get rid of uh, things, you know, Leviticus 10 applies to a man who's being rough, rude, obnoxious, demeaning to his wife, and then has the audacity to come before God as if everything's okay, as if he's going to receive my worship. And brother, you know, this is the reality. I, you know, I remember, I remember just being in part of a huge church where there are men who are singing with loud voices and professing to speak in tongues, mm. but yet it is known that they are absolutely abusing their wives. And, you know, you, you have, you have people who think that somehow they're paying some sort of penance for coming before God. And, and they're actually treat, even though they are Protestant in theology, they come before God thinking if I could just sing and have this, some sort of atmosphere, be yet my home life's a wreck. Right. I'm not raising my children the, the way God command the way God commands me to, and, and all of these things. And then I, I, you know, I'm going to expect now to draw near to God mm. that that's, this is, you know, something like Leviticus 10 has everything to do with, with our life of worship, uh, even now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord, the one who mm. has clean hands and a pure heart. Amen. Um, you know, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Uh, if we have this, if we have this hope in him, well, then we will purify ourselves as he is pure. Uh, mm. That's the overwhelming testimony of scripture and the analogy of scripture, you know, using scripture to interpret scripture tells us these things. Uh, and right. if you shut, if you shut off the two, the two thirds of the old Testament and you've shut off it, almost everything that God has told you about how he is to be worshiped and how he, how seriously he takes worship. I said, I preached a sermon the other week at uh, at Smith Chapel. While we're waiting on our pastor to move down here. Good grief! Uh, <laughs> so I praying like a lot. This guy he's going <laughs> to turn into a pillar of salt to be honest. <laughs> uh, so I had the I had the the privilege of preaching, and I began the sermon, you know, by saying, "Imagine that uh, a chef invites you to his house for dinner, and he's the you know he's has all the accolades and the awards of the best chef in the world, and more than that, he has a perfect." infinite knowledge of who you are an infinite knowledge of what you need of what you like and an infinite knowledge of everything required for your nourishment and he brings you to his house he provides this perfect meal for you you believe that he is the best chef you believe he has this knowledge of, of food and spices and ingredients you believe he has this perfect knowledge of you and then he sets this meal before you and you're like i don't know what's in this two-thirds of it so i'm not going to eat it or you know uh, actually, I, I see that some other people have this same two thirds on their plate. So he, that must be for other people. I'm not going to eat that. And how most people treat the scripture that way. Um, yeah. You know, like we mentioned, well, all of this stuff in the Old Testament doesn't apply to us because we're not under the law. We're under grace. But again, you know, we go back to Hebrews 12 and say, uh, well, the scriptures, the New Testament scripture tells us explicitly there is an acceptable worship and an unacceptable worship. Mm. Um. This is probably one of my favorite examples from the Old Testament, just specifically because of the wording. And this comes from 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, reading of Jeroboam. It says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah. They will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. 
And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. This thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the other altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and he went up to the altar to make offerings. So here's what we have. I don't think Jeroboam was trying to worship a different god. He made these, he's made these golden calves, just like Aaron had done. And he says to the people, this is the god who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So he's not saying, oh, now here we have another god. He's saying, this is this, this god that has revealed himself. This is what he's like. And I know he said to worship him this way, but you've gone and done that far enough. We're going to worship now in this new way. I've got, and, and look how much he copies. He builds temples. He builds altars. He establishes a priesthood. He establishes feasts and festivals. But it says he does them according to the time that he had devised in his own heart. Just whatever he felt like. And so you have him worshiping the same God, the true God, in a way that he had invented in his own mind. Um, and if you go on to read First Kings 13 and 14, Jeroboam and his family are, are cursed, and he ultimately dies for his sin. And that just goes to show us that God takes his worship seriously, that you are not at liberty to just devise according to your own heart and your own imaginations the way that you will worship God. Mm, that's good. Uh, Conrad Merle has a great sermon on the sin of Jeroboam, mm. and he relates it to to the basically the church planning strategies of of the day mm, you know yeah, when you really <laughs> it's a powerful one and uh you know it was uh, wh what verse was it because i got i got lost but it's but it specifically says right jeroboam so that the hearts would not go to to king rehoboam yeah right yeah. and so jeroboam now invents these ways of worship so that the people don't go to the other king Right. Right. And so here, you know, don't don't travel to his his kingdom. We're going to do the same thing. And that is exactly what the church motto is, is let's let's invent ways of worships to get the people in for sure. so that they're not in the world, that they're not, um, you know, going out and partying and doing. You see this a lot with the youth groups. Right. You know, let's create a youth group so that our youth has somewhere safe to go. Mm. And. But all the while missing, well, what does the Bible say about the church? What does the Bible say about how the church ought to meet and what, what kind of practices ought the, the church ought to uh, practice when they come together and assemble themselves? And so what do you have? You have this, it's seemingly well-meaning, right? It's, it's very uh, well-meaning. We don't want, we want, we want to get them in. We want to win them. But at the end of the day, you know what you're ultimately doing is saying, I have more wisdom than God in bringing people into the kingdom. And so yeah. I'm going to invent my own ways. And it's very pragmatic. It's not based off revelation. And that is exactly what Jeroboam does here. You know, let, let me let me create this kind of worship, this counterfeit worship. And this was a snare to generation after generation after mm. generation. And that's kind of what even Conrad touches on the sermon is that, you know, nobody's tearing down the high altars. That's right. 
they're all they're all feeling you know as culture changes now all we're doing is just trying to make that high place that altar that idol uh conform to the pattern of the world to get people in because at the end of the day well it's at least it's not as bad as the other things but what you ultimately have then is people who are and here's the thing you, you hit it right on the head where jeroboam wasn't worship wasn't professing to worship another god right and that's the thing you can call his name jesus all you mm-hmm. want uh jesus this jesus that is it the jesus that's revealed in scripture yeah is yeah. it the jesus of that that um are we worshiping the true jesus in 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 the holy spirit and um you know i mean again just using the husband and wife analogy which is so uh so close you know imagine me going up to my wife and telling her how much i love her blonde hair and her black skin boy that worship ain't gonna be received that's exactly right (laughs) yeah what kind of woman are you talking about that's and that's the same thing what we hear you know you you have this idea where well my intentions are good and i don't know if i don't know if we were going to touch on this but uzzah right oh yeah Uzzah, Uzzah is one who had great intentions. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall. The, they, they stumble and the, the, the precious Ark of God is about to hit the ground. And yet he tries to, again, good intentions, trying to keep something holy from touching the ground. And God strikes him dead. Right. That's. Yeah. You know, you said something that, that kind of hit me. I never really seen there in the first Kings passage before. And that was ultimately. What was Jeroboam trying to accomplish? I mean, yes, he's trying to worship the right God according to his own mind for sure, but his ultimate goal was to win the hearts of the people to himself. Mm. And I think, you know, from a church leadership perspective, whenever whenever you begin to start shaping the the assembly around the preferences of people or even around your own preference or around the experience that people can have, or like you mentioned, formulating a youth group to have a certain kind of experience. Ultimately, what are you trying to win those people to? Mm. You could almost say, going back to the example I gave of the, the guy that had come to our town to plant a church, Jeroboam's just trying to execute his unique vision. He's just trying, he has a unique vision for the people and he's trying to carry it out. And he wants people to get excited and, and buy into and get on board with his, his mission, with his vision. Don't go back to Rehoboam. Don't go back to those ways. I've got something better. Um, mm. You know, like uh, I remember there was this church. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, we used to go have these meetings there when I lived in Canada all the time. And this church's motto, like it said it right on their sign was a church for people who aren't into church. Mm. And they used to pass out flyers and stuff that would say things like try church again or, and those kind of things. And I'm just like, good grief, how much more, you know, putting it in that context from Conrad Merle about the, the modern church planning movement of them just devising these things according to their own imaginations and trying to win people over. That is exactly what we see all around us in modern day, quote unquote, evangelicalism. Everybody has a conference. Everybody has a band. Everybody has a book. Everybody has a cool hip pastor. Everybody has a youth group. Everybody has something they're trying to win you to. Um, And very rarely is it Christ himself. He is the treasure. He's, you know, the treasure hidden in the field. He is, he is the one who is, as we say, worthy of all sacrifice. That's, that's the ultimate goal is to draw near to him. Amen. And and this is the beauty of it all is that the believer who worships according to the spirit finds it his joy 
to worship according to God's revelation. You see, like these, you know, we, we see these examples of people inventing worship and what happens with their life. I mean, you see, you, you they're written for our example. And you mm. see, when you have the reformations of Hezekiah and Josiah, you have these men who, who don't compromise. They don't turn to the left or to the right. You have King Asa and tearing down the high places. And then what happens? Blessing. Right. Peace. You know, and especially within the context of the blessings of the old covenant, you have uh, peace within the land, you have uh, physical prosperity, you know, wine and oil abounding. God is God is not reluctant to bless. He desires to bless. And we are the foolish ones. Men are the foolish ones who are thinking, no, I'm going to see this is not God's way is not working. Right? God, God's way is not because God doesn't work according to me. God. The, the old God commands the way he desires to be worshiped because he desires to get all the glory out of it. Right. He desires to be glorified. And as a recipient of God's grace, that is where I find most joy. I mean, I'm right. kind of like taking, I'm taking Piper a little bit. And kind yeah, of for sure. Me, you know? No, it is. But, it's, I mean, it's true. It's that it's like, people are afraid to say that it seems like, um, mm -hmm. you know, and people are out seeking this ultimate satisfaction and experiences when it's found in God. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You know, Jesus said that. He said, if I go away, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. That is the culmination. Glorification is the eternal culmination of our redemption. The full redemption of our bodies. This is it. When we are in his presence, complete in him, sin is done away with. And now we have the capacity to worship him apart from sin, to worship him apart from our own self-motivation, to worship him apart from any kind of lack of interest or, or, or the ebb and flow of our natural emotions. We will be given the full capacity to enjoy him. That That's what glory is going to be. Mm. And and we get a glimpse of that in our worship services. Uh, when we gather with the saints, it's, it's heaven on earth. It really is. This is a picture of, of the glory that is to be revealed in us. Um, and when you take that and you make it about self-expression or your own individual personal experience, now, not to say that those are bad. You, you, ought, to have, you ought to have a personal relationship with the Lord, um, and you ought to have a personal walk with Christ. I think that's laid out for us in the Song of Solomon. Uh, mm. there, there, there is real, genuine, personal, intimate communion that you have with the Lord. But when we come into the assembly and the worship, that's what we're talking about is there, he has given us the way it ought to be so that he is glorified and we receive the ultimate good. Uh, mm. It's not like these are, you know, First uh, John chapter 5, if we know him, then we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This isn't mm. Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, come to me. I have no yoke. Right. He says, come to me. My burden is easy. My, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not that all the rules go out the window, but he now, you know, uh, in the inner man is renewed. The inner man is born again. This principle of grace is implanted within the soul. The life of God is put in the soul. We're made new creatures in Christ. His law is written on our heart. And now these laws uh, is specifically what we're talking about here. The way God desires to be worshiped, become a delight to us, not a burden. Mm. That's right. That's right.
Um, let's jump to the New Testament here, as we're we. I feel like we're going to talk about this all night. I'm good if you're um, good. We'll keep rolling. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Um, the New Testament. We see the the example of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. Um, is it? You think it's your turn to read if you want to read. Uh, okay. Matthew 15 verses one through nine. The pages of the scripture turning are as the flutters of angels' wings. <laughs> I think it was Spurgeon who said that. Uh, I like that. It says, uh, then the uh, verses one to nine, you said? Yes, sir. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Mm. And in vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Yeah, so here's one of the things I like about this passage is it kind of gets into what you were discussing earlier, that not just what we do in the worship service, but everything about our lives is worship. It is a proclamation of the worth of God, of our view of who God is and our view of what he commands us to do. Because is there anything wrong with washing? No. Is there anything wrong with giving to God? No. Is there something wrong with turning traditions into commandments about how we must worship? Yes. Because the principle is clearly established. You worship God as he is commanded and only as he is commanded. Uh, to add to his commandments, perceiving it as acceptable to God. It's like it does away. It had led them to become more fond of their inventions than of God's instructions. And I think the problem with many of the groups that call themselves churches today is the addition of their traditions as worship breaks the commandments given by God concerning the mode of worship. You know, again, going back to Deuteronomy, he said, everything that I command you, be careful to do it. Do not add to it and do not take away from it because that's what we see when people begin, when tradition or even what we're talking about here, self-expression or self-experience, personal experience, when those things begin creeping in alongside of what God has commanded, eventually what God has commanded is completely made nothing of. And mm. the self-expression or the personal experience then becomes the primary thing. Right, right. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, you look, you look here and, and, you, you know, people don't, the, the folks who they speak down on tradition a lot, you know, are, are, we don't believe in tradition, you know, we believe just the Bible and, but everything could be, everything we do in a sense is a tradition. For example, the Bible doesn't say that um, we should sing before the preaching of the word, right? right. <laughs> you know, that's, that is what we do when we see, you know, to each church will express what they think is most helpful and beneficial for the edification of the saints. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we do as tradition, but here, like you just pointed to, here's the, the problem is when now you hold to tradition so dearly that you will now make null the commandments of God. Right. Now you have put tradition and 
And here's where, uh, you know, a lot of people stumble, you know, especially those who perhaps they were part of a church for so long. You think of the traditional churches, you know, and uh, that come to mind and these people who've done things a certain way for a certain long time. And it's just now convenient to do it this way. Mm. This is the way we've always um, handled the finances. This is always the way we sang or this, these are, this is always the way we used these kinds of instruments, how much instruments, you know, how many songs do we sing? And all of a sudden love is thrown out the window, right? The preference for the brethren, you know, making sure that we're not destroying uh, other people's consciences. And, and, and so there's this, it's almost as if that, and that's where the, the tradition becomes a danger is because when we become so in love with traditions themselves that come out of the word of God, right? I mean, in one sense, you could say these traditions uh, come in one way from uh, the, the scripture. I mean, for example, they're, they're doing these, I mean, you don't see the necessarily, that's not commanded in scripture about washing, right? Right. But, you know, you have this sense of desiring to be holy, this desire of, sure. of these pictures to be separate and consecrated. But now what, what was their, what was their issue there? They're elevating these traditions that came from scriptural principles, but now absolutely destroying the clear commands of God and the more weightier matters, right? The weightier matters to God. And I think this is kind of where the bridge of, of the application is connected between what we would tend to point out in these situations from like an elevation church or something like that. And it crosses over even into our own circles, the more traditional reformed churches because we have that tendency to take our traditions and elevate them to the status of commandments. And what we find is empty, heartless worship, according to traditions, mouths are moving, lips are offering up lip service to God. And yet there is no heart in it. So they're honoring God with their lips. They're, they're, you know, catechism, singing Psalms, uh, reciting the apostles creed or whatever it is their tradition is that they're doing in their gathering but yet the heart of the heart of worship is is gone and as you said right. there is no love for god there is no love for his word there is no love for his commandments there's no genuine communion with christ there's no dependency upon the spirit but they have their traditions and their commandments marked down and so they feel like they've worshiped and that's where the tension is between we worship according to what God has revealed and only according to what God has revealed, but there has to be truth in there. And that, I think that kind of, you see that and, and well, we won't read the passage for just for the length of it, but we see that in the woman at the well, mm. you know, she tells Jesus, you know, trying to start to pick a fight a little bit between a Jew and a Samaritan. She's like, you know, we worship on this mountain back here. You guys say only in Jerusalem, can you worship? And she's thinking she's going to pick this fight. And Jesus says, listen, here's the reality of it. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So there must be truth, but there also must be spirit. So it must be according to revelation, but it also must be genuine spiritual experiential communion with God. Mm. and and that's lost a lot Mm. yeah absolutely i mean you brought up you brought up the emotional aspect even 
you know, you see Song of Solomon, which is a powerful book on the the expressions, but the expression the expressions are good when it comes from revelation. Right. You know, when that right. joy comes from a true encounter with God, when you do want to shout, you know, to the Lord because you just you you're starting to feel that Ephesians 3 reality of being filled, no, you know, having a greater understanding of the width, length, depth, and height, the love of Christ that passes knowledge, you know, and and uh and so now you have those who will look down upon the true affections and the, the, the desire to lift up holy hands, the desire to shout even or cry or whatever mm -hmm. it might be, whatever um, your heart is, how your heart is responding to, to who God is. Um, you'll have, again, the more, some folks looking down upon that, right? Because of their traditions yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing how broad the spectrum goes because you can go, you know, these people over here who they think they haven't worshipped if they're not mm -hmm. screaming and running the aisles or, or crying right. or speaking in tongues or whatever. And then you have these people over here who they're afraid to show any kind of emotion in worship lest it be considered, mm -hmm. you know, out of order and chaotic because God is not the author of confusion. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's because there isn't a lot of the spirit in it. Uh, mm. it, so you have, you know, this side is lacking spirit and experientialism, and this side is lacking truth and revelation and, yeah. and being hemmed in by the scriptures. And it's always, I always find it to be the case that the scripture, if we would just take it at its, at its simplicity, the scripture is always centered. It's always perfectly balanced. Amen. And, you know, Amen. I used to tell the men this at our men's Bible study at our church that if you have the tendency that you're going to fall off this way, or you're going to fall off this way, the scripture is the safeguard that keeps you in the center. Uh, mm -hmm. And whichever side of the ditch that you think is worse, you're probably closer to going off in the other one. Yeah. And you need yeah. to, you need to come back to the scripture. That's right. Um, that's, that's really good. What you just said, because you just, you just said, you, see like that, that's, that's a man-made tradition or, or a concept. Well, I'm safer on this side. Right. Says, says who <laughs> exactly says ever is ever strange fire is strange fire exactly. who are you to say what's the better ever what's the better pendulum swing but like you you know the, the scripture the scripture not being scared of being like that or sounding like that that's not that is not our you know i'm too scared to be like the charismatics oh i'm too scared i don't i don't want to be cold like the 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 those those frozen chosen the frozen chosen yeah. exactly yeah yeah you know don't be scared about what you're gonna look like be be biblical and and what you'll find is you're you're you'll you'll really be alone because both sides won't like that biblical balance because men who are stuck in their traditions on whatever side of the spectrum it is always look down on those who are just seeking to be faithful to scripture yeah for sure for sure and one more example I want to talk about, and then we'll uh, we'll get into a little bit of, of application. And we'll wrap this thing up. Um, this comes from Second Kings chapter eighteen, uh, verses one through five, and I won't read it. But this is a part of the revival of Hezekiah you mentioned. Mm -hmm. During the one of the things I love about the revival during the days of Hezekiah is we finally get to read, and he removed the high places. You know, you, you had seen some kings come and there been some measure of revival and awakening. And yet you always read this. When I read it, I literally, and my wife can attest to this, there's times where I'll be reading through, especially through the historical books, and I'll see this phrase, nevertheless, the high places were not removed. Mm. And I, 
I'll literally sigh out loud. I'm like, good grief. Like what, what was keeping you back? What was holding you back? You done so much. You broke down the ashram and you tore down temples and you, and you executed false prophets and, but you didn't tear down the high places. Why didn't you just go and tear down the high places? But then we get to Hezekiah and it's like, oh man, finally the high places were torn down. But then we read in second Kings 18, just kind of this little, it's almost like a, like a side comment that he destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had made for up to that time, the people had hoard after it. And what I love about this example is we have something that God had actually commanded his people to make. God had told Moses, this is what you do. This is how salvation is going to be brought. You make the serpent, you, you, you make it out of bronze, you put it on a pole, you put it where everyone can see it. And whoever looks upon it will be saved. And it's this great picture of Christ, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who looks in him and believes will have everlasting life. It's like, oh, this is amazing. But then we find these people had taken something good, something that God had commanded them to make, and now they are using it in a manner inconsistent with the way God had intended it. And it became false worship. It became spiritual idolatry. And the first example I could think about this practically is like the King James only movement. You know, we ought to be people of the word. We ought to, we ought to be, you know, scripture alone. We ought to, we ought to build everything we do up on the word, but you get into some of these hyper fundamentalist groups and it's like, they are like God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy King James Bible. And there's this elevation, you know, when you, I remember I was passing out tracks in my hometown at a, a local street fair. This was maybe three or four years ago. I gave a guy a gospel track. I said, sir, can, may I give you something to read to tell you how to find life and salvation in Christ? And before he took it out of my hand, he looked down at it and he said, what Bible translation is that? Um, and I said, uh, King James, because I knew coming from this area i was like let me go ahead and, and not lay a stumbling block so these tracks were actually printed in, in the king james and i said oh it's king james and he took it he said well that's good if it ain't you know if it ain't king james then i ain't reading it that ain't the bible um and you know i was just thinking like man what an example of taking something that god has given to his people and putting it on this this level of worship where you're actually worshiping this translation more than you worship god himself Mm, yeah that's 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 good I, I, you know that the bronze serpent I, I sometimes you know you read through scriptures especially when you're reading the historical books or you're reading narrative and you're just kind of like you want to know more what was going on i mean so, sometimes you could read past that and yeah. think oh this is great look at this like you, you could read hezekiah and and you're just like he's the hero he is the man mm. everybody's just probably singing his praises no <laughs> yeah no he was they had you, you don't it. think there were people who were saying how dare you break the bronze serpent that's exactly of, right of moses you know there were people probably he was probably being persecuted by his own i mean you're thinking of this theocracy this political nation you know they didn't have uh if they had facebook forget about it the blogs would be going crazy about king hezekiah you <laughs> know we need to get this guy impeached you know he's he's he, he, he's tweeting mean about the the, the the bronze serpent but you know um it, it, what was going on through their mind and hezekiah just seemed like he's all out for the lord you know he yeah. is devoted he has a fear of god that outweighs the fear of man 
and he comes and he destroys a relic that is precious. Mm. The bronze, you were just bringing that up. The bronze serpent was a precious uh, relic, right? And and God, there's nothing wrong with the bronze serpent. It wasn't right. an idol, right. you know. It wasn't it wasn't some sort of uh, false image. But now it was used. Now it was being a stumbling block. And uh, you know, I brother, you know, just 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 even thinking about my own, own pastoring, you know, for the past few years. You know, there was a sense in which, um, you know, we had a we had a prayer meeting one night, we had a Bible study another night, and then we had the Sunday meeting. And uh, it got to the point where I started noticing, well, everybody loves the systematic theology class. Everybody's showing up. But when it comes to the prayer meeting, it's empty. Mm. And and then, you know, I, I we started to understand that, you know, three meetings, th- three meetings a week, you know, could be taxing when you're trying to make ends meet and things like that. And so as a as a shepherd, you're, you're praying through things, seeing what's most beneficial for the church. But then you start realizing, well, you know what, maybe there's a hunger for knowledge, but is there a true hunger for God? Is there a true desire to lay bare before him? And so, you know, something as great as systematic theology, something as great as studying your Bible, we said, you know what, we're getting rid of this meeting because Mm -hmm. we need to pray. We need to seek the Lord in prayer. There, There are needs that we have as a church there. There are things that you know, we need the spirit of God to be poured out upon, you know, we need his, his power, his, his blessing upon our works. And, you know, just applying it to our own church, even we're saying, you know what, that's it. You know, if we're not going to show up to the prayer meeting, and maybe if it's too taxing, let's, we're going to get rid of that, that class and, and, and seek the Lord, you know, because even, even something as good as, as a class like that, or as a study like that, um, you know, you have to make decisions and see, well, is, is it, is it being approached in the wrong way now being a stumbling block in a certain way? And so, you know, we felt that the right thing to do is, is, is take that away. And that's, and that's, you know, that's something that we could apply in, in our own life, in our own situations, good things being um, blown out of proportion. Right. And, yeah. and being the main focus as, as the bronze serpent. Um it's like that, yeah. that. It's like that quote, uh, kind of a popular quote from John Calvin, that the human heart is, as it were, a perpetual factory of idols. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're so we're so prone to latching on to gifts uh, that make very good gifts, and then trying to turn them into gods. Yeah, uh, yeah. And we we stay so you know again maybe to for uh, not for lack of not trying to do this, but sounding a little like John Piper here, we walk around so discontented. Because these gifts that God has given us are meant to be enjoyed as gifts, but they make lousy gods. And so when we make them our gods, we find ourselves empty and shallow. Um, and you see that a lot with, uh, like you said, with the theology, especially in our circle. Someone discovers Calvinism or, you know, uh, the doctrines of grace that God is sovereign over salvation. And then it just consumes them mm. and to where they're boasting in this system. Uh, of, mm. of understanding God's works more than they are in boasting in God. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let the one who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. And and yet we go to the opposite extreme. And it's it's again, I think it goes back to self-expression and to to preference because some people, myself included, were naturally prone toward intellectualism. Yeah. are naturally prone to, I want to learn, I want to understand, I want to know, 
I want to understand the syllogisms. I want to be able to put theology into a system that makes it understandable and relatable. And I think very linearly, you know, so this plus this plus this, therefore this. So give me my theology in that kind of way. And then when you got it, and then you begin learning some apologetics and you realize, okay, now uh, Jeff uh, Jeff just preached at church Sunday. He's a, he's a brother from Virginia. He works for the, for Heart Cry Missionary Society. He's an elder at the church up there. And he preached about how a sharp sword in the hand of a warrior is, uh, it's just undeniable the good it can do. But then you give that same sharp sword to a madman and how dangerous it becomes or how a scalpel has to be so sharp and so precise in order to do its purpose and save lives. And yet the danger of something that sharp, how much damage and death it can cause. And then how people take these good gifts and then they just wield them like a madman um, and, and it becomes their ultimate commitment. Um, that's right. And, and that's the, that's the danger of, and I think, you know, Hezekiah tearing down the bronze serpent. Uh, it's like you said, that's not, he wasn't popular for that. <laughs> I can see all the old ladies in the, in, you know, talking about him as they're going <laughs> out to the whales and they, in the cool of the day, they're upset with him because, oh my goodness, can you, who does he think he is? Who is Hezekiah? I mean, we're talking about Moses here. Moses, Moses, yeah. Moses yeah. made that thing. Who does he think he is? This was when God was shining in a flame of fire among his people. Do we think that God is, is here now more than he was then? And you can just hear all of it instead of just saying, okay, what has God said? Mm. What has God said? It really comes down to that. What has God said? And I've, I'm fully convinced in my own experience, both in my own life and in pastoring, that if you can get someone to the starting point of what has God said and where has he said it, then yeah. you can really see obedience and spiritual maturity. But that's where you have to get them to. It's not me versus you. It's not my preference versus your preference. It's not my tradition versus your tradition. It's not my grandpa versus your grandma. It isn't any of those things. It isn't Baptist versus Presbyterian. It isn't, you know, Westminster versus London. It is, it, no, it's what has God said. Yeah. And that has to be the final authority. And that, that's kind of where I want us to get to wrapping this thing up because if you're hearing this and you realize that your worship has been dominated by self-expression or preference, what should you do? Mm. Obviously we would say, well, you need to repent, but what does repentance in this area look like? And I want to give one more example from the scripture. You mentioned this earlier. It's the situation around Uzzah and the ark. Um, and I want to read here. A couple sections of scripture, and then we'll, we'll give some closing comments. Uh, this is coming from First Chronicles chapter 13. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, and I'm, I'll skip around. Um, beginning in verse 1, it says, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and to the Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart, and David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. 
So far, so good. If it seems right to God, if the congregation is on board with it, let's do it. And we're going to do it. Everything's going great. People are rejoicing. Revival's happening. Verse 9. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Wow. I mean, you're talking like, <laughs> I just, I mean, I can't even put myself to understand, to fathom. You talk about, you know, killing the party. Here is all of Israel. Everybody has come together for this. The ark of God is here in the center. These two men have been given such a great honor to, to bring the ark in. And this guy's just trying to catch it. And God doesn't say, thank you. What a great and nobody. No, he kills him for it. Then we're verse 11. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but he took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, here's what I think is interesting. A revelation of God to his people ought to make them want to draw near. But because David had put all of this together in his own mind, and because it wasn't just what has God said, but it was also, if this is okay with everybody, now they're worshiping according to their own imagination. They're carrying the ark the way that God has not said to do it. Uzzah is doing something God has said you do not do. And God breaks out against them among the people. I will be sanctified. I will be glorified. And the response of David is, I've got to get away from God. I can't have this come near. Now worship is not happening. The exact opposite is happening. Get this God away from me. Now that takes us back to the garden. That's what Adam and Eve said. They heard the Lord walking in the cool of the day, and they went and hid themselves. How can we draw near to God? We can't draw near to God. Right. And then, this is, this is revival, I think. We jump to 15, chapter 15, 1 Chronicles 15. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. Now, that's interesting. Where do you think he got that from? How does David have this knowledge? Well, he's gone back to the law of Moses. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. And he goes through and lists the different sons of Aaron and the sons of the Levites and the priests. Verse 11, David summoned the priests Zadok and Abathar, the Levites. He lists them all out here, and he says this to them in verse 12. You are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves. Now we're getting somewhere. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Mm. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now we go through here. The ark is placed in the tent. David's prepared. And then they sing a song of thanksgiving. And what had changed? They said, we've got to get back to the rule. We've got to right. get back to where God told us what to do. And they do it 
and God blesses them for it. So that's, mm. that's, the, that's the application here. If you realize that your worship has been dominated by self-expression and preference, here's what you do. You come back to the rule. Mm. Come back to the rule. You have to get back to the scriptures. And I purposely did not in decide to include, well, let's go through what are some of the things the scripture commands us about worship? Because I don't want... I don't want this to turn into you just, you see a problem. Now you're spoon fed the answer and repentance doesn't take place. I want you, if you've have, if you've been convicted of this, I want you to come back yourself to the rule and ask yourself, what does God have to say about this? And yeah. here's some principles to guide you. If it is not in the scripture, don't do it. Hmm. If it is in the scripture, do it. <laughs> and if the scripture says, don't do it, don't do it right like don't add to it don't take away and don't think just well the scripture doesn't say i can't do this well now you're devising things again in your own heart mm -hmm. um, the scripture didn't say nadab and abihu couldn't offer that but it did tell them what to do the yeah. scripture didn't say that jeroboam couldn't make his own day but it had told them what day god had intended so mm -hmm. you know if the scripture commands it, do it. If the scripture says don't do it, don't do it. And if the scripture doesn't command it in the assembly, then don't do it. Uh, maybe we'll do an episode sometime on Christian liberty. Uh, and you do have Christian liberty. We see that in Romans 14 about days you want to observe as an individual, meats you want to eat or abstain from or whatever as an individual. But we're talking about in the corporate worship service. So, uh, Anthony, I'll give you the last word here, man. Give us some concluding thoughts you have. Yeah, no, that's good. The the superior new King James says <laughs> in, in chapter 15, verse 13, it says they didn't consult him about the proper order. Mm. And, uh, you know, just to give another sense of, of the what I think you said the rule, right? That's yeah. what that's what it was translated. I think there's also another rendering says regarding the ordinance. Mm. Um but no, just that's that's really weighty and something that's worthy to, to meditate on, to chew on. Um, and the, the only closing thoughts I have is really not that I want to go backwards, but I think it, it, it ties into to this with the with the brazen um, serpent. Right. You know, what what happens is, is that when we were just talking about this fear of not being going to that extreme. And so we go to the other extreme. And when you're driven by fear, you're not driven by faith. Yeah. Right. Fear is the opposite of faith. And so ultimately, what do you do? when you're afraid, you want control. You, you want to be God. <laughs> I mean, that's right. at the end of the day, you know, and that's why false worship is ultimately worship to a false God. You've created an idol, which is yourself, which ties into everything we've been saying is that self-expression, self-worship, creating a God. What is man's problem is that they um, worship uh, created things. They worship right. self and create idols. And ultimately, when we are afraid, uh, you know, you brought up David about being afraid. When, you, when you're afraid, what you ultimately want is to be in control. Right. I want to be in control. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up boundaries for myself so that I don't get like that. And, and so I don't get like that. And ultimately, what do you start doing? You create your own rules. Mm. You create your own attitudes. You create your own traditions ultimately. because And it's, and again, all false religion can be summarized in fear, the mm. fear of torment. That's false good. worship is driven by fear. 
But first John tells us that true worship is driven by faith working through love. That is, that is the circumcision. That is what it means to walk in the spirit that we are walking by faith, faith in what God's revelation of himself, his word, everything that he has revealed. I mean, that ultimately is faith. Um, when a, a person who's living in false worship, it's a, it's, it's not true faith. You know, it's a false faith to create a conjured up faith, but faith is like true faith is laying hold of something. And what is that something? It is God's revelation, his testimony of what he said about himself, what he says about you, what he says about the way he ought to be worshiped. And that is the life of faith. It's saying, what has God said about himself? I'm going to trust it. And ultimately he knows best. And the true right. worship of God is going to lead me to my own greatest satisfaction and joy. Amen. Well, brother, thanks for coming on. Hopefully Thank next you. time, uh, next time we chat with each other, there'll be a, a new quagliata around. Ah, yes, uh, that's it. That's uh, it. filling the world with Italians. <laughs> <laughs> the clan is the clan is growing. That's it, man. Hey, that's well, right. brother. Uh, yeah, we love you. Can't wait for you to get down here. Uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, to everybody listening to this, you are again listening to the Church Militant Podcast. Until next time, God bless you. God bless.